0: Welcome back to the Arbitration
1: Station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, okay. two, three. In Russia.
0: Oh, <laughs> well of course. <laughs> He's gonna get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds
1: good, maybe they won't. <laughs> <make sense>. Arriba. <laughs> This is The Arbitration Station, to which you are welcome. My name is with good boy And I'm Brian Kodak We are your co host for another episode of The Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, which leaves 1% of uh, travel back and forth complications. Of carbon footprint. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Where in the world are you, Joel, expressing I, your carbon footprint?
1: I am back in Copenhagen, about to go to Uppsala in a few hours by train. So very limited carbon footprint. Where in the world are you, Ryan? Well done, well done. I'm still in London. You left me here, but it's still
0: sunny. Um, I have no travel plans except for Morocco in a month. So
1: By train, I assume? Or maybe By second. train,
0: I'll be walking. Do you know now you can offset your carbon footprint?
1: Now? Isn't that a 2013 piece of news?
0: <laughs> don't show my all. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. You pay like a couple, like, I don't know, 10 pounds or a hundred kroner and, and it offsets your cover footprint.
1: Oh, really? Uh, I heard about this when I was in high school, I think. <laughs> but thanks for pointing this out. <laughs> uh, in my day, we had to walk. Um, how okay. are you, Brian in, in London town? I, I am good. Just, um, working on a post hearing brief,
0: which, um, it's a very polarizing subject for people. Maybe we should talk about that in a segment.
1: How are you? What's up with you? I'm back in the in the teaching grind. I started ah, in, in Uppsala again. Um, my supervisor and uh, and general mentor uh, was basically forced to retire. We have a mandatory retirement age at public universities in Sweden, so just... he doesn't teach as much. I I picked up some of the slack, and we have a new incoming master's class that I've been teaching uh, a lot actually, uh, in, in Uppsala, which is highly enjoyable. Great class this year. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm also teaching in Lund in the south of Sweden, so I'm oh, really? shuttling yeah. back and forth. Do they have a specific program in Lund? or is... No, but I'm working on that. Uh, it's, a, it's a specialized course in investment law and arbitration that is now given for the first time. So not a lot of students have, have signed up, but hopefully we'll get the word of mouth going for the the upcoming semesters. Uh, it's I just so can't believe sense. I can't believe how established it is now in curricula.
0: You know, we met with Patrick Persall and he said he was teaching at Georgetown for an investment arbitration course, mm. and I was like, "Wow!" I mean, it was not like that ten years ago.
1: Yeah, can you imagine if we actually got training in this field, how much better we would be? I, I know, right? <laughs> it used to be a competitive edge that I knew what an investment was. Um, yep, nope, times that. are changing. <laughs>
0: Um, Do we have any events coming up?
1: Yes, we don't because we unfortunately will not be able to make it. But uh, hopefully some others will go go to the Dutch Arbitration Day on uh, 10th of October 2019, which is uh, in just a few weeks. The title of that event is The Challenges and Opportunities in a New Decade. The Impact of the Changing Legal and Political Landscape on Arbitration which is a very good topic, I think, or a theme, I guess, because there will be several subtopics, And a lot of both Dutch and international practitioners and scholars will be there. And as we said in the first episode, Amsterdam is amazing, especially this time of year. So the best. you should go. Practice your Dutch.
0: Yes, it's an um, age,
1: obviously, but the, the, <laughs> many of the names are in Dutch. <laughs> uh,
0: no, that should be a great seminar. And we apologize profusely for our um, lack of attendance, but um, I'm sure it's going to be a great program and we'll look forward to next year. Speaking of
1: Dutch people-ish, Belgian people, actually that's kind of a stretch and I guess Belgians would be offended. Our first guest of this season is Emily Hay that's the first segment of this episode she's a senior associate with Annotty Owen Vandenberg in Brussels and he Vandenberg is Dutch that was my mental bridge we got we got it, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> She is a, f- a friend of us, uh, both of ours, and she uh, works both as tribunal secretary and counsel with this boutique law firm that should be well known to most of our listeners. She also happens to be an expert on data protection law, which we saw as an opening to talk about GDPR, which we haven't in the past, because all of us, even me included, are afraid of GDPR. Mm-hmm. She is not, though. So we uh, we uh, we called her to uh, ask a little bit about how GDPR comes in arbitration, in particular because uh, there's a recent NAFTA case where it was argued uh, by one party, unsuccessfully ultimately, that GDPR would apply uh, in, in the arbitration.
0: Right, and whether you know whether to be included in POs and, and how it's going to
1: be affecting our everyday life. Yes, like it or not, we should all think about this uh, at least a, f- a few times a year. Exactly. Um, and then, I
0: rumor has it, you are going to teach us about um, arbitral awards
1: as assets. Exactly. I won't say too much about that now, because I okay. don't have that much to say, so I'll, I'll sit on <laughs> it until we get And there.
0: then we will tie up this episode, um, because we are all coming back from vacation and our summer holidays, about the trials and tribulations and the excitement of working while on
1: vacation. Hmm, I look forward to this as a person <laughs> who's never had a vacation. I look forward to you complaining about uh, your tough lifestyle. It's going to be such a cathartic segment. Before we move on to that, though, we have some uh, tentative and preliminary news on a meta level about the podcast because we will expand. You and I will add a third co-host to be disclosed most likely in the next episode. Cliffhanger extraordinary <laughs> that might do something interesting to our dynamic but we don't really know what
0: <laughs> i know this is going to be an exciting new ingredient i'm over the moon that this is happening i think it's going to elevate the podcast in a great way and i can't wait to share the
1: news yes but we will have to wait a little bit longer until the person in question is in the room and can introduce uh, him or herself <gasps> oh keeping the suspense alive i love it should we get started Yes, it's time for Emily Hay, GDPR. So, be- before we move to GDPR, we have a running thing that we've been talking about in the, uh, in the, in the history of the podcast, and that is how do uh, we pronounce properly the name of your boss, or I guess one of your bosses, but you know whose last name it is we're talking about. Do, do Have you practiced your Dutch pronunciation?
2: But uh, I don't even know which one you think is harder.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Albert Jan, let's say his 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 name is Albert Jan something.
2: Vandenberg.
1: Vandenberg, yeah. Uh,
2: The the G, the I mean, he would be perfect. He gets called all sorts of things by by people. Though I mean, he would be perfectly happy with the English Vandenberg. If, if if that's what came. <laughs> if, if he got all of his names and with an English G, I think he'd be perfectly happy with that. But I think the Dutch G is a bit more like a. Right. But I don't say that. I say Bendenberg.
1: <laughs> okay, that means we can do that too, confidently going forward on the cast. Deal.
2: I think you can. I mean, I think arrogant English speakers generally do
0: that. <laughs>
1: I know. Yeah, as as one ryan being being an arrogant english speaker you can identify i guess
0: yeah except for the the brits say ibiza with a spanish accent and i don't know why uh,
1: ibiza. Move. <laughs> yeah. okay sorry let's continue <laughs> <It's cooler. laughs> so we wanted to talk to you obviously because you are a seasoned expert when it comes to gdpr which we know literally nothing about so keep keep in mind that we are treat us as as four-year-olds essentially throughout this conversation oh, yeah. with with no previous insight into into She's GDPR. Like, That's easy.
2: <laughs> Well lucky you.
1: <laughs> you wrote a blog post about this and the blog post among other things addressed a case that I also saw when it came out tenant energy versus Canada where GDPR came up because one of the parties wanted to make sure or was arguing that GDPR was applicable between the parties but before we get to that case do you mind introducing two four-year-olds to the the basics of GDPR an acronym that we know a lot about but maybe not necessarily the the content of it and and what, especially why it matters in international arbitration. Sure
2: I'd love to Um, thanks for having me on um basically the gdpr i hope no four-year-old needs to understand because it is actually a little bit difficult to uh, translate between even legal languages so i mean we speak arbitration legalese but data protection legalese is a bit of a different language um, so please stop me if or interrupt me if Something doesn't make sense because sometimes sort of one term leads to another term, and there's a, a background to them.
1: Are you saying you're fluent so, in both, or you're bilingual in data protection legalese <laughs> and arbitration legalese?
2: i <laughs> I'm proud to say I think I'm nearly. I wouldn't say bilingual, but I, I have a good level of of both.
0: Humble, Humble. <laughs> yeah,
1: proficient in both.
2: Conversational. Yeah. Put it on
0: your CV and the language skills. <laughs>
2: actually worked in data protection before i worked in arbitration so i never really expected that they would intersect but i'm finding lately that that they do more than i expected good
1: good for you
2: (laughs) so um so the gdpr stands for the general data protection regulation Uh, it came into effect in may 2018 so that uh, was two years after it was passed, so there was sort of a two-year grace period where everyone knew it was coming, um, but uh, were engaged in preparations, and it came into force, yeah, about 18 months ago now. And it's a regulation uh, rather than a directive, so for those of you familiar with EU law, it's um, it has direct effect in member states as opposed to having to be implemented by national law. So uh, the idea is that then you can just rely on the text as it's written and it's more harmonized than across the EU because when you have to implement in each jurisdiction they can make little changes and it ends up with a slightly different regime everywhere. So. Even though that's the aim, there, there is national implementing leg- legislation and there's a certain level of discretion for countries to implement exemptions in certain areas. So there's still not perfect harmonization, but uh, largely the, the GDPR applies all over the EU and in fact uh, in the EEA, so a bit broader. So the whole idea of the GDPR is that everybody has the right to the protection of their personal data. That's a human right. And so it sets out sort of a number of obligations and principles by which data should be processed. So that includes that uh, data processing should be lawful, uh, it should be done fairly, and it should be done transparently. So um, there's a few different key concepts, I guess, that uh, might be useful to understand. And I won't sort of go into all of the ins and outs of all of them. in order to understand the GDPR you should have a look at what is personal data to start with um, because the GDPR has a definition that might not be the same as other data protection um, legislation across the world and what is data processing. So personal data itself is information relating to an identified or identifiable natural person. So that's <laughs> like everything really bright.
1: that's broad. <laughs> that includes names for example
2: absolutely names um ip address your mobile device identifier uh, your location data your opinions your political views um your address your photo wow. when you appear in a video uh if you appear in a sound recording everything and it includes even business documents. So it doesn't matter whether it's like a professional context or a personal context. Um, that includes, for example, your work email address has your name in it, then it's personal data. Uh, the only ones that wouldn't be personal data is, for example, info at the organization name. So there's at there's right. least name in it, then it's not personal data. So personal data is everything, and processing is also everything. So uh, it's pretty much anything that you do with personal data that includes collecting it, recording it, organizing it, storing it, adapting it, retrieving it, consulting it, using it, disclosing it, and even deleting it. (laughs)
0: It's like a
1: Daft (laughs) box. So
2: So you you now understand that the GDPR applies to everything uh, everywhere.
1: Including arbitration (laughs) then, presumably.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. So there's no... There's, there's no carve out for arbitration proceedings and there's, there's not even a carve out for courts actually. So oh. um, so it, the judicial um, processing activities are not exempt. There are some sort of uh, areas in which member states could make exemptions for them, but in principle it applies also in courts. But courts uh, have a different supervisory authority. So the idea is that in every EU country, there's a regulatory body who supervises data protection uh, in that country. And the courts have a sort of parallel system, so they're not supervised by the same authority, but a different one that's specific to the courts. So, But they're not exempt as such either.
0: But does that mean, I mean, let's say there's a criminal case going on and the defendant's name, he says, I don't want my name to be released, but normally the court would be transparent in those types of that type of information. So
2: the the criminal matters, I think you'll find that they will be governed by different, um, different obligations. So I'm I'm not sure that the GDPR itself applies exactly to the criminal investigations, but it would apply to the commercial, um, commercial matters in court.
1: Right. But, But in arbitration, uh, who has the obligations under the GDPR? Is it the arbitral tribunal that is tasked with complying with the regulation, or be
2: no? And this, I think, is a it's an extremely important question. Um, the The obligation falls on the person who's called the data controller. Hmm. So, um, under the GDPR, you have different roles there's a data controller and a data processor so the data controller is the person who determines the purposes and the means of processing of the data and the processor is someone who processes data but on behalf of a controller so they're not really um, doing things of their own account they're acting on the instructions of the controller so um, in any given arbitral proceedings actually pretty much everybody is a data controller for different types of processing. You know, the the parties themselves determine what they collect data for originally. Their lawyers then uh, are also data controllers because they don't just act on their client's instructions, they're using it for the purposes of proving their case for their client and they're making decisions about which data to include, which data to not, which data to delete, which data to submit. Uh, So they're also data controllers. Uh, the tribunal members are data controllers because they're deciding, obviously, um, what data is used for decision-making and what's not. Um, the only one who would not be, maybe, would be data analysts if they're acting on very specific instructions um, where they don't really have discretion to on what to do with the data. And, uh, for example, if you store data in a cloud, the cloud service provider is a data processor.
0: But this is only oh, if that. the cloud is within the EU or the EEA? Uh,
2: that doesn't matter, actually. So once once you're a controller,
0: uh-huh. uh,
2: then the obligations apply to all of your data processing activities wherever they are in the world. So you can't... Um, Skip the obligation just by sending data outside the EU and that's quite strongly regulated in any event so um basically once you have an establishment in the EU then you're a controller under the under the GDPR and it doesn't matter where you do your data processing then it all has to be compliant
1: ah but the controller or the processor must be within EU jurisdiction even if the data so, doesn't have to <laughs>
2: That's another uh, interesting question that, <laughs> <But, laughs> well, it just gets wider and wider, but just before we move on, uh, to, so to answer your question before about who has the obligation, yeah. everybody everybody has their own obligations, and mm. so they're accountable to their own data protection supervisory authorities, and so it's a bit like, you know, VAT obligations or your legal professional obligations, it's, it belongs to the person and not to the proceedings as such, so it's not like, the tribunal's job to make sure everybody's compliant right.
1: uh,
2: with the obligations. It's it's everybody's ultimate responsibility because everyone would be accountable to their super, to their own supervisory authority. If um, if they were inspected, it wouldn't. Um, it's not something that you can delegate to somebody else necessarily.
0: So you wouldn't, like, because we were talking about this before, that you would, we were like, should the tribunal put it in every PO1 now that you need to observe your GDPR rights or, but I guess it doesn't even matter because everyone has their own individual obligations, so it doesn't have to be enshrined in a PO1.
2: Well, you can debate about that. Yes, ultimately, it it may not matter. But if uh, there is any issue down the line, it might help to be able to demonstrate that that the parties and the tribunal have thought about data protection oh, okay. and put put measures in place if necessary. Um, so you there's, there's an emphasis on documentation and being able to demonstrate um, your data protection obligations. So it's not necessarily a bad idea, but you may have situations in a case where everybody's subject to different data protection regimes, um, and so it can be a bit tricky to figure out exactly who is subject to which law and and to find agreement on that. But it um, but it is something that it can be useful to bring up, um, especially if, for example, everybody's subject to GDPR and everybody's on the same page about that. Then um, then it can it may not be so controversial.
1: Is it, is it your experience or your view as a data protection preacher <laughs> that the that the gospel is being observed and that tribunals and parties <laughs> and lawyers are by and large thinking about these issues, or is it still something that you think is largely overlooked?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say yet we're by and large um, there yet, so I think I think we're getting there and we're making a great steps towards being more aware of this as, a, as an important issue at the outset of the proceedings and, and throughout, and there, there's definitely more attention being paid. Um, but at the same time, I don't think um, best practices have really crystallized yet, and I think people are still getting their head around some of these data protection concepts, and, and because, like I said, it's a bit of a different language, um, if you just read the words on the page, it might not be obvious what they mean, because sometimes they're linked, you know, like what EU law is like. It might be linked to another concept mentioned in a recital of the GDPR, which might be elaborated more in jurisprudence in the European courts, so um, it has its own, it's its, its own little bubble, and where we need to understand it to a certain extent, and we're, we're getting there. But, um, but I think there's still more work to be done. Because, for example, if somebody says uh, to their colleague, look, um, what sort of template boilerplate language should I put in my PO1 about data protection, And someone says, "Well, I just used this one, and nobody objected, and then you slot it in." But there's a few (laughs) templates—not that anybody. There's a few. There's a few templates floating around that are that are not great. Um, For example, and we can go into this more. um, For example, there are ones floating around which say, "Well, everybody needs to get the." Uh, consent of all of the data subjects used in the arbitral proceedings uh, in order to have a legal basis to process the data. But actually, uh, consent is not a very good basis to process data in arbitral proceedings. And you might be sort of shooting yourself in the foot um, <laughs> by by putting that in there. So uh, I think, yeah, there's still more work to be done about uh, awareness of this
1: I know you're a, a serious professional and a bit reluctant to comment on an ongoing case, but I, I find the tenant energy case interesting. And, and I don't really understand. Maybe you can speculate <laughs> why, why in this case, it was the claimant. I think the investors, they wanted the the tribunal to decide that GDPR applied in the proceedings. What would be the interest underlying that? Why, why would you want that in the first place? What's the, what's the point? It's, it sounds just onerous. And that if, if the, the, the obligation is there anyway, as you said. Why why would yeah. you want the tribunal to incorporate it somehow officially on the record in the in the in the proceedings?
2: Well, uh, I wouldn't like to speculate, as you said, about what was the claimant's intention. It seemed that they wanted uh, to bring this matter to the tribunal's attention. It may be that they were. Um Concerned about the implications of data protection and to ensure that everybody was compliant to the extent they needed to be, mm. uh, the claimant had a lot of questions for the tribunal and for the for the respondent party about um, different aspects of their that might have an implication for the data protection obligations, like whether the arbitrators have an establishment in the EU and things like that, um, and other provisions that lead to the applicability of data protection obligations. So um, it may be that the claimant just wanted everything to be clarified. I don't know. I know that Canada, in its submissions in response to the claimant, complained that uh, the claimant was raising a lot of questions and problems without suggesting any solutions. So, um, this was a bit of an issue in dispute between the parties in that case.
0: Is, and, um, is, is this a self policing <laughs> issue? You know, if, if something gets raised in the arbitration and someone just like it did in this case that the claimant says, wait a second, um, there's a, let's say there's a violation of a GDPR or what they thought a violation of someone's rights. Um, two things. One, is it self-policing saying that they have to raise it themselves or who is responsible to raise it? And second is, um, what can what is the remedy if there's a violation and arbitration of someone's GDPR rights? Yeah,
2: they're, they're great questions. Um, so I think you can have a debate about whose responsibility responsibility it is, and I don't think there's necessarily consensus on this. I think, obviously, it will depend on um, what obligations people are subject to in the proceedings. And, and, like I said, everyone has their own obligations. So if, for example, it's the mm, arbitrator uh, who's the only participant subject to the GDPR, then you could argue that it's in the tribunal's interest to put forward uh, some suggestions. But if, for example, it's the parties or one of the parties or some of the parties that have uh, GDPR obligations, then they may want to reach an agreement on any necessary arrangements that need to be put in place. And so I think often it can be a combination of the two. You know, the the tribunal could put it on the agenda at the, the first procedural meeting just to mm-hmm. check uh, what obligations everybody is subject to and what uh, arrangements or whether any measures are necessary to be put in place uh, to take into account. Um, because the GDPR is certainly not the only data protection uh, regime internationally and, um, and so there may be other ones applicable as well. So right really depends on the case um and and yeah i don't think uh i i wouldn't like to declare who has the obligation here uh whether it's on the parties or on the tribunal but i think that it may depend on the case Mm
1: -hmm. right and this is exactly the kind of uncertainty that we uh try to avoid in in arbitration where you don't really know exactly what applies and to whom but you mentioned in the in the end of your blog post that there's um A joint task force on data protection established uh, by ICA and the IBA, I think. Do you know anything more about that? Have they started working on these issues? It sounds like there might be uh, some need for for some guidance.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, So that's what the task force has been busy all year um, on exactly these sorts of issues and uh, how to sort of intersect a bit of the the fundamentals of data protection with the fundamentals of arbitration, and to give people a bit of guidance, a bit of familiarity. Um, it should be a bit of a practical tool, I think, for people. To have an idea what to do in specific proceedings, but um, but it's also uh, will be a bit of a reference, I think, to people who are not familiar with these data protection concepts. So I think that the idea is to fill a bit of a gap here um, that I think will be very welcome. Yeah.
0: Um, can I just ask a question I was curious about because um, just to, to tie it to investor state arbitration, because when we were preparing for this, it's something in my case had come up and I thought it was interesting. If you're thinking about a nationality of an investor um, and some, let's say the investor is a company and the company has is made up of just a bunch of shareholders or it's a, share, it's a holding company or whatever. Um, Do you and, you know, there's a lot of shareholders and, you know, you said consent is not necessarily required um, and that it would just be shooting themselves in the foot if they required this consent, which would actually be the case. And this could and this goes back to my question about the remedy. Is there a way that a party can not withhold, but kind of stymie a release of data that could potentially prove the basis for jurisdiction, if you get my question? <laughs> can you hide behind the gdpr country. yeah can you hide behind gdpr can you use gdpr to kind of not release helpful or damaging information
2: uh-huh, i see yeah um it, it's a it's a it's another very, you always put your finger right on the, <laughs> the <tricky laughs> point. i guess that's the that's another fundamental question but um it's the right that needs to be taken into account together with other very important rights like process, um, like the right to be heard, and so it has to be weighed up against other other rights. and it depends very much on the circumstances so I, and I need to look into the exact scenario that that you mentioned, but yeah. um, it doesn't trump everything else. so uh, and that's something that's important, I think to educate people about is like how data protection fits into um, the other very important principles of arbitration, like equal treatment of the parties, like due process, um, you know, you need to be able to, to prove your case, and uh, the administration of justice is a very uh, important value as well. So, yeah, um,
0: that's a good answer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think, and a lot of data protection concepts uh, involve a weighing of interest. So, one of the legal grounds that, that's very important in the arbitration context. Uh, for processing data is legitimate interest. So um, rather than consent, you rely on the legitimate interest of the controller or a a third party for the purposes of that processing. And a very legitimate interest is, of course, uh, the interest of justice and the the interest of, of fairness in the proceedings and having a just outcome. And in order to, to rely on the legitimate interest ground, you have to look at what are the purposes of the processing and how does that balance with the interests of the data subject in question. So it has to be proportionate. Um, you, know, you look at the relevance of the data. Is it completely uh, irrelevant data that's being submitted to, to a claim that has nothing to do with that? Um, so you have a bit of a weighing up here of the different rights and interests at stake.
1: Mm, that sounds at least uh, a, b- a bit soothing. You don't have to be too worried. Not afraid, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a better word. But
2: I mean, I think even 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 a weighing exercise for some arbitration practitioners is a bit. Um, it's a bit of a shock, you know that that. That these principles would get a, a look in at all in the equation. So right. I think that's a bit of the um, just adapting the the view a bit to to take these into account as a legitimate concern.
1: Right, Emily Hay, thank you for educating us. Yes, thank you so much.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk data protection.
1: So I started teaching, as I mentioned, initially uh, at the Uppsala master's program with a very uh, active class. A lot of people in the class have practiced or have experienced from arbitration. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, The first session was in addition to all the household housekeeping issues that you always have to take care of at the initial session. I also gave an introductory lecture to arbitration in general, including commercial and state to state also, but also, of course, investment arbitration. And I mentioned... I hadn't thought about this or prepared it, but I mentioned just as an offhand remark that arbitral awards are also actually pretty decent assets and something that are being traded on a secondary market. And then I uh, was about to return to my prepared lecture and I got nine different questions on this because that was interesting to the students, it seemed. Uh, And I realized I don't know anything about this. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect podcast like that. Yeah, exactly. However, I still don't really know anything about this, which, which is the caveat for this whole uh, segment. There, there are, of course, the well-known cases of the so-called vulture funds that bought up awards against Argentina and then opposed the restructuring of Argentina's debt. They became holdout creditors and, and uh, got a lot of bad press for this. That's the most famous example that I think most arbitration lawyers know about. When it comes to arbitral awards being uh, sold bought and sold uh, on the on the marketplace but uh, there are some other interesting cases too but th- there's a problem here i think um, third-party funding which is related nothing new uh, to us or our listeners buying interests in pending cases but uh, when it comes to awards that have already been rendered there's not a lot of transparency in the market, surely they are worth something, these arbitral awards. But the the actors involved tend to be rather tight-lipped. And I've tried to speak to some of our third-party funding friends about this. Uh, but it's kind of hard to even identify who are the major players on this yeah. market for ended awards. And I know a few research people who at different stages have looked into this. And uh, for obvious reasons, it's kind of hard to get inside this business. So there's not a lot of publicly available information. So this is what I thought. If we talk about this based on the little information that we do have, maybe we will be sufficiently misinformed so as to entice some of our many third party funding listeners to want to set the record straight and reach out to <laughs> us and, and that's a ex- good uh, caveat. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be particularly wrong so that you respond. Exactly. So if you don't want to talk to us then we will just go ahead on our own and maybe you'll be forced to get back to us afterwards. That is a, a big caveat to keep in mind. But we got some able research help as is usually the case from from Dimitri uh, and there are actually a few relatively recent cases that came up just to illustrate what it is that I'm interested in talking about. So we are at the stage when the award has been rendered Mm -hmm. and if for one reason or another the winning party does not want to pursue enforcement it may sell quote unquote the award by assigning it to a third party right and this is the the market that we know very little about who these uh, buyers or assignees of the awards are Um, but As I mentioned, there are a few cases that I want to throw in the mix to make it more relevant. And and the first is FG Hemisphere, a case which you actually touched upon in a prior segment, Brian, when we discussed state immunity. Mm. FG Hemisphere was this award creditor uh, and the award debtor, i.e. the losing party in the arbitration, was the Democratic Republic of Congo. You probably don't remember this, but uh, FG Hemisphere attempted enforcement in Hong Kong. But it was unsuccessful because of the strong or the absolute state immunity in China. They could not enforce the award in Congo. Do you remember? Yes, yes. Good. On the same page for once. (laughs) There are, in fact, two awards here in the FG Hemisphere case. Uh, Together, they were valued at some 30 million US when they were rendered in 2003, But it's not FG Hemisphere that won the arbitration, and that's the point. It's an entity called Energo Invest, which then assigned the rights under the awards to FG Hemisphere. So the entity, FG Hemisphere Chasing Enforcement, was not involved in the arbitration, but subsequently um, acquired the rights won in the arbitration. And the interesting thing here is that there is now litigation pending in France over these awards, which I'll return to in a minute. The key point is that this litigation means that we now know more about the underlying facts that we did before. And most relevant for us is that FG Hemisphere paid 3.6 million U.S. for the awards valued at 30 million.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, right. And I, it's not a wild guess, I think, that this amounts to 10% of the awards, including interest. Right? If if the awards were, were, were valued at 30 million and... Yeah. Then maybe the interest would be six hundred thousand. Yeah, uh, uh, that would make three point six million ten percent of the watch. Uh, this this I think is interesting. How do you quantify this? What is the, the appropriate haircut, uh, so to speak, when you yeah. buy a it board? I mean, to- I wonder
0: if they do it. I, I wonder if it's it's not just a plain percentage. If it's kind of like a multiple of you know, the chance of recovery and the jurisdiction and then, you know, how
1: much, obviously how much, and maybe there's like more of a formula for these funds. Exactly. Somewhere out there, there's a person who does this co- kind of very interesting analysis for Contact a living. Us. <laughs> <laughs> Please. It's similar to third-party funding, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. when you try to quantify how how much an investment is worth and if it is feasible to go ahead and fund a claim with the, a key exception being that here you have more of the facts on the table because the award has already been rendered, you can now look at assets and how likely it is that you will have to fight hard depending on who who the respondent is, et cetera, et cetera. To me, just without knowing anything about the remaining facts of the FG Hemisphere case, 10%, of, uh, which is essentially a 90% discount, sounds very cheap. Yeah. But who am I to know? (laughs) Anyway, and maybe not so. That's the point of the French litigation if we return to that because there's a French civil code procedure provision which enables a debtor to extinguish its debt where the debt has been assigned by the original creditor to a third party, which is the case here. Uh, Under this provision of French law, the debt is extinguished if the debtor offers to pay the assignee the same price that the assignee paid to acquire the debt from the original creditor, plus fees, expenses, and interest. And this is an offer that cannot be refused under French law. And this is very interesting, I think. It would seem, therefore, in this scenario that we have in the FG Hemisphere case, that the Democratic Republic of Congo might be able to get out of this mess by paying FG Hemisphere 3.6 million rather than the full award value. They can just make FG Hemisphere whole and thereby get out of this. So they wouldn't make any money. Exactly. And I say this might be the case because litigation is still pending, actually. Uh, The Paris Court of Appeal initially found for procedural reasons that the Democratic Republic of Congo's arguments were inadmissible. But this was changed on appeal and the case was remanded back to the Court of Appeal who now has to deal with these issues. And the case is pending with a judgment expected in 2020. So watch this space, I guess, for whenever the judgment comes out. But it sounds like those who have entered into sale and assignment transactions related to arbitral awards that are subject to post-award proceedings in France, and I'm also guessing there might be similar provisions elsewhere, but I don't really know about that. These... Um, buyers of arbitral awards might benefit from carefully considering their positions. For example, it might be better to consider a more traditional third-party funding structure where the original creditor retains the title uh, while agreeing to share a portion of any future proceeds with the investor rather than the original creditor just selling the whole thing because that might actually uh, enter enter into some legal problems. Right. And this, I'm guessing, the, the French provision is not obviously tailored to this particular situation, but has to do more generally with when third parties acquire rights. Uh, so it's not something that I'm guessing envisioned this particular scenario with arbitral awards being sold. So it might be the case that such a pro-arbitration jurisdiction as France would find itself in some, some problems here if they have to apply this. Right. Absolutely. About the fund is pissed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but on the other hand, this is due diligence. I, I'm guessing that the um, the underlying arbitration was seated in France. So if you buy an arbitral award, which has a French nationality, so to speak, under the New York Convention, maybe you should look at the French law <laughs> in how how and if you can actually acquire arbitral awards. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly
0: that's something to be done. But as you said, it
1: may not have something that has been
0: triggered because... No one would have been looking at this type of like obscure provision.
1: Exactly. But we have another uh, scenario, which is in the United States, which is which is less obscure and more well-known, I think, in which uh, Blue Ridge Investments bought the rights to the award in the ICSID case between CMS and Argentina, and Blue Ridge sought to enforce this in the U.S. after Argentina failed to annul the award before an ICSID annulment committee, and here in the U.S. court, among other things, uh, such as sovereign immunity, res statutory limitations, Argentina also argued that Blue Ridge, as an assignee, had no authority to seek recognition and enforcement because, and here I'm quoting, only a party to the underlying arbitration can seek recognition or enforcement of the award under Article 54 of the ICSID convention. A transferee or assignee of the award cannot. Mm. It's an interesting argument. And just to refresh the minds of all the people, uh, you included, that do not recall Article 54 of the Exit Convention verbatim, verbatim, uh, it provides as follows in relevant part. A party seeking recognition or enforcement in the territories of a contracting state shall furnish to a competent court or other authority which such state shall have designated for this purpose a copy of the award certified by the general. So the key phrase here is that it's only a party, presumably, that can seek recognition or enforcement under the ICSID convention. Very interesting, I think. Yeah, that is that is an interesting point. Yeah, and here the U.S. judge faced with the issue carried out a pretty detailed textual analysis of the term party in Article 54, concluding that it did not always refer to a party to the arbitration. Mm. And as New York law recognized assignment of judgment, The court found that, uh, I'm quoting here, nothing in the exit convention in Congress's legislation implementing exit or in New York law prevents an SINE from seeking recognition and enforcement of an exit convention award. I tend to agree with this. Yeah, this is just a pragmatic (laughs) approach, I think. But the interesting thing now, speaking as a scholar who is interested in uh, how domestic courts approach international law, is True. that it shouldn't really matter what New York law or the Congress of the United States has said here. What should matter, arguably, is the treaty interpretation of the exit convention, primarily. Of the term party, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And here, I think there's more room than what the U.S. judge allow. To actually go deeper into the text and the travaux and try to figure out what 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 was the intention here, and what is the reasonable in the you know context of the object and purpose and so on uh, mm. with the word party in Article 54. In any event, uh, Blue Ridge here used non-judicial avenues to force Argentina to honor the award, and they petitioned the U.S. Trade Representative to suspend Argentina. From um, the US Generalized System of Preferences and lobbied the US government to block World Bank loans to, to Argentina. Wow. Unfortunately, which is often the case, scholars are always disappointed. Argentina settled this case together with a number of others, which had also been assigned, this time to the fund Gramercy. But it was reported that the funds, both in CMS and these two other cases, had paid a 25% discount on the nominal value of the awards. So uh, much more expensive than buying the award against the Democratic Republic of Congo, <laughs> <it> would seem. <laughs> we'll see, that makes sense. I guess it does. And I don't know at what point or where, what kind of analysis went into the quantification of the the price of the award here. But of course, Argentina at a certain point uh, turned a corner and decided to try to honor their obligations and get out of all of their, their debt. So uh, presumably this award was uh, a more valuable asset Mm. finally on this topic of arbitral awards as assets there's another scenario that touches upon it which was reported recently and I think it's uh, very very interesting Uh, 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 an interesting development in particular for law firms representing winning claimants what if you don't get paid by your winning client Mm -hmm. enter creative dentons law firm (laughs) this was on OGMed and also reported widely in in the arbitration community Uh, last month in August a Delaware court allowed Dentons to execute upon a 250 million US award uh, an ICC award in a dispute between the customs and tax consultancy and again the Democratic Republic of Congo to recover legal fees that had not been paid by the customs and tax consultancy which was the client, Denton's client. Unfortunately, we don't really know much here because the arguments of the petitioners were not detailed and the CTC, their former client, uh, neither filed a reply brief nor appeared at the hearing. But Denton's basically argued that because CTC, the uh, former client, had all right and title to the award that was an asset of CTC... And Denton's claim that uh, the firm was not aware of any other of CTC's assets it could use to satisfy the judgment because it mm-hmm. had one, that was part of the factual matrix, was that there was already a judgment saying basically CTC owes Denton's money for fees that were not paid as part of the arbitration. And ultimately, and thank you, Dimitri, for this little nugget from the hearing on 26th of August 2019, The the vice chancellor of the court of chancery in Delaware granted this petition to Denton's and he reportedly said as follows. This is the judgment. It's an interesting case and interesting relief, but I think you're right. I can do this. (laughs) I love the US sometimes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very, very complex legal analysis right there.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I love that. Uh, so that's also something to keep in mind uh, if you represent clients that win in arbitration and then do not pay you, uh, even if they don't have any other assets, the award as such might be an asset that you can use to satisfy the money that they owe you. That's, uh, that is, it's really interesting. I really it like must, that. It must happen every now and then. This sounds like a...
0: Yeah, you wonder, I mean, especially with states, because, you know, you, you get paid monthly, right? You send out a bill monthly to the client, so hopefully they're paying as they go. So you you don't often have a huge outstanding bill at the end of the time. But some states, I know, pay at the end of the year. Mm. So uh, you have a whole year's worth of billings, and you're waiting for that, like, final thing. Then the award comes, and then um, they sell it off. But it just seems like there's a privity issue, doesn't it? Like, um, you know, you have your contract with, you know, your engagement letter with the state, for example, then the state has a contract for the sale of the asset, just seems like you would have a privity issue to go after the assignee of the, so you'd have to go over the state, Um,
1: you wouldn't have any other remedy. Uh, What do you mean, if the award has been transferred on to someone else? Yeah, Yeah. you couldn't go after Uh. the fund. Right, that's actually a good point. Didn't think about that I, I think in this in this scenario that uh, that was not the case. it was still the case that the the award was was just untouched, so to speak. yeah, but uh, uh, I don't know anything about the law here, but that's that's a very good point if if the uh, not paying client had transferred the award in this case, mm-hmm. um, I guess it would also depend on the domestic law and w- that governed this, yeah, whatever law that might be <laughs> exactly.
0: Who knows? And if Conflict. that's a cross-border issue... Oh, God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> um, it, that's great. Can't yes. wait to have an <laughs> asset of an award. Yeah,
1: that would if be... You uh, promote
0: third-party funding. That's your takeaway, that this should could all be avoided if you get third-party funding.
1: Uh, I'm not very comfortable being a promoter of third-party funding. I'm just saying that, uh, relatively speaking, Yeah. Com- compared to trying to, uh, after the fact... Assigning the award, uh, the the person who wants to get paid might benefit from third party funding instead. Mm-hmm. fair. that's that's my hedging uh, statement. So. <laughs> All right, it is time to move on. And it's happy fun time.
0: The sound of beer on the beach now in a tropical place and you get a ping on your mobile device that you need to start working on your vacation.
1: When was the last time you were on a tropical beach, Brian?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, 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 I guess Bali. But that was um, particularly planned after three main filings and a hearing. And I knew I was going to have time off. mm mm-hmm and access to internet would have been intermittent and it was just like it needed to all all the stars had to align for me to take a vacation like that where you completely fall off the grid so this segment is about whether it is possible to work on a vacation kind of what you think is the policy on working on vacation and just how much it sucks to work on vacation
1: (laughs) Um <laughs> this I, I already sense that this might be interesting because because we might be out of character, both of us here. I think I have a different view on this than you do, probably,
0: um because i very I'm very steadfast in my vacation planning. but i I mean, I have worked on I, I there has not been a vacation where I have not worked, um whether it's answering an email or taking a call or joining a call or whatever. I mean, and that's expected. I've had a partner tell me,', um, sorry to make you do this, but this is the law. Um, so that was a very um, commiserating comment. Hmm? But what what was the law? That you have to work on vacation?
1: Isn't the yeah. law the
0: opposite of that? Oh no, like this is the legal field.
1: Oh, okay. I thought you were like, the law uh, actually provides oh. oh. that you must work on vacation. Then what no, 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 okay. no. U.S., I guess. No, but this is the legal profession. <laughs> you, chose, you chose this state, basically. Right, that's a good point, though.
0: Um. But basically, so I, I, it's just, I'm, for me to be effective, fully affected, I even have trouble working from home, but I can do it, but I have trouble working from home because um, I, you need a couple monitors, you need to have access to fast internet, you know, the second your remote connection dips, your productivity dips at least 50%. Um, you know, you're having to click back between documents and open up mm. multiple emails and search properly. And, you know, it just, it just,
1: can I ask a stupid, hard. but, but practical question on this, yeah. uh, on this topic? Is it the case that because you, uh, you being law firm, people work in confidential matters, you typically need more bandwidth because you have to go through some sort of extra server layer or that things are in like, yeah management systems that are not Gmail.
0: Exactly. So your remote connection usually is a program and then you have a pin code and then it and then you can access it or you can use like a VPN that's like a secured VPN but you're yeah. right it it does slow the computer down if
1: and that's why you need much faster internet. You cannot do that from an internet cafe in Bali
0: no, you click open a thing, Windows Outlook is processing, Windows Outlook is not responding, mm. oh, it has responded, my document has opened. Oh, I need to look at this document? Windows Outlook is not responding. It's just like, <laughs> I can't. And then and then you're like, okay, well, how, I mean, and am I going to bill this time? Because I'm just like sitting and waiting for this document to open. And now I've taken time away from the sunshine that is staring at me out of the window. It's just like, it just doesn't make any sense. So, like, you know, are you expected to have full-fledged internet um, the entire time you go on vacation? I mean, that's like a, a ridiculous concept. But I guess you have to manage expectations. Before yeah, that. and
1: I guess it it would be to some uh, members of the community equally ridiculous to say I can't do this because I don't have access to good internet right now. That's yep. a non excuse to a, a busy partner who needs something ASAP. Yes.
0: No. Ab- ab- absolutely. They'd be like, go somewhere. Find some place and get internet. Uh, pay the most money and get internet. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: an- another thing I was thinking about, because this happened to me recently, um, and it happened to me in my previous job, is when you should cancel vacations. Mm, or this when is you should cut them short. Um, so there's some firms have a policy that if you have to cancel your vacation, that they will, um, based off an unexpected deadline that has come up, that they will um, compensate you for that. The issue is, if financially,
1: issue. or with more vacation?
0: <laughs> financially, mm-hmm. uh, well, both. I mean, you, that, that's not vacation, but um, they'll pay you financially for your ticket and your hotel and you know anything that like cannot be canceled. Mm. Um, but the, I mean, you know, the question is, they're not going to pay for your significant other. They're not going to pay for your group of friends yeah. that are all renting the villa. And, you know, or, you know, a a two couples trip, and now (laughs) 25% of the people can't go.
1: I, I will. I'm so sorry, Brian. I feel for you, but I will also file this. In the huge pile of things uh, labeled Crimea River uh, business <gasps> lawyer. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. I, yeah. Well, that's what my partner said. It's like, you signed up for this.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I rented a very expensive villa in south of France, and I could only <laughs> I be there for, for nine days and not for 12 <laughs> oh, <my> days.
0: <laughs> God. I didn't even realize that was coming out of my mouth.
1: <laughs> it's um... like when you, I don't know if you remember, when you were upset, you know, when you talked about traveling with colleagues, and you were upset that your colleagues wanted to come pick you up in a, in a taxi outside your apartment. <laughs> to take you to the airport and you were whining about having to talk to people in a taxi paid for by someone else where you got picked up
0: <laughs> Oh no, I'm delusional
1: No, you're just a, a, a rich douchebag from California working in London You're in good company uh,
0: I pay out the head in rent Okay, I'm not rich <laughs> um, Okay, fine I didn't have a villa, it was an Airbnb and there were 55 people staying in a bedroom But still, I had yes, to cancel still.
1: Yeah, same point
0: Um, I've so like it happened to me recently that I was on vacation and it was quite an extended vacation, so um, this it didn't really infect me, but a lot of work was coming in and I was sitting at home for full days working. And then I thought to myself, is this better for me just to cut my trip short, save the vacation days, and -hmm. just head home early? Mm -hmm. And that's what I decided because I think, and I think some people would beg to differ. Some people say, I don't mind working from my hotel because I'm still like in that vacation feel. Um, whereas I'm like, if I'm not getting a full vacation feel, I just want to leave.
1: <laughs> I, can get you must get
0: this, I mean, you must get this with a reporter that you, uh, you know, a case comes out or you're like asked to deliver something that you did not expect to come. And now you have to do it that you'd have
1: to like, you know, cancel things or, or be stuck in a hotel room. Right. Yeah, I don't know to what extent I'm representative. I would imagine there are more people out there like me who are basically free agents you know, just floating around in this world. Uh, I know there, I know a few others who have a similar arrangement. Basically, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a contractor, right. similar to other consultants who work on their own. I, it's, it's kind of up to me for better or for worse. I've not taken a single trip solely for personal reasons for years. I think i always combine the trips with some travel uh, and and sort of with some work and that might be more or less work sometimes i just have to do one or two things and i can be away for nine days and call it a business trip whereas i spent seven days doing something other than than business but yes absolutely you're right but in the in the specific i reporter scenario there are other people like me and you know it's an ongoing conversation and i can make uh case-by-case case judgment. Is it is it worth it for me to spend an extra day on this now where I really had other plans? Well, you know, right. I, can, I can do it as a long-term investment because I like working for iReporter and everyone else is more busy than I am right now or doing something else. Then I might take one for the team where I might say, Ah, actually, I just went away on a trip and I have some other things going. Can you see if maybe someone else can can do it? And that applies to emergency teaching or to writing expert opinions or doing some, all of the other things that I have to do to to keep the lights right. on but so that's you know the do you
0: feel do you feel like um imposed upon do you feel resentful or are you more of the workhorse type of person that's like well this is my job and i feel i actually feel quite cool that i have to like run to a hotel and get internet (laughs) and do work because
1: i'm 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 none of those uh people actually because i the way i justify it is that i've chosen this life i could probably not successfully but i could probably work for a law firm and be in your position but i've chosen a much more flexible life that allows me to do whatever i want essentially Mm -hmm. as long as i perform a, a a minimal amount of tasks and that comes with flexibility but it also comes with costs so i'm i'm basically I, I on average i work much less than you do obviously uh, but i i do it on my own schedule and that also means that sometimes i just have to to swallow that i have to work even if i didn't really want to because that's the cost that comes with being a free agent i'm i'm never working as much as you are but i'm also never off entirely so you know exactly. the millennial uh, <laughs> Basically, I'm like a creative professional, you know, I'm like a web designer in mid in their mid-twenties. <laughs> uh,
0: you, I mean, though, you know, I think, talk about, I think culturally as well, it can be different.
1: Um, mm, that's a very good point.
0: Sweden was amazing about, this person's on vacation, do not contact them, uh, versus like a more American, probably British approach, which is, you're always on call, we pay you for this. Um but then you know there's got to be, and and I think I think firms, most firms have policies in place to make it as like, painless as possible. You know they'll pay your phone bill so you can always like you know roam or you know use a hotspot with your phone, mm. um, even when you're abroad. And you know that type of thing won't be a huge cost to you, so you can really you know at all costs get the job done, which I think is nice. And I think any firm that's trying to cut costs by you know, seeking reimbursement for each little charge that you have is is quite difficult because then the person's going to want to cut quarters in the way that they do their work because they don't, you know, they don't want to get it reimbursed later on. They just want to, like, have everything covered. Their computer works right. properly. You need IT support 24 hours a day. Like, it just needs to be as seamless as possible or else the expectation of the partner who's calling you on your vacation can't be that high. Um, but, yeah, as I it's I think it's cultural. In Sweden, they're very good about, like, Oh, Agnetha's hiking. We can't call her.
1: <laughs> Does that apply to like senior partners too? In your experience? Yeah, I think they were
0: they were pretty good about it. Um, even if you went to the gym, I mean, like you know, it was like, oh no, they're gone for an hour. We'll get them when they get back. Instead of like calling, 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 calling. Where are you?
1: Why mm, is this done? I love Sweden. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. No, I think that was. And you know what? I think you know employees are much more willing to like come back and like rearing to go and. I think, you know, when you request leave and your leave is approved, everyone knows that at that point, that week, we're all gonna have to pick up a little bit more of slack. So it's just about like putting everything above board and like managing it properly. Right,
1: social democracy at work, love that shit. It
0: was, it was a pretty good gig over there, I have to say.
1: <laughs> Can I ask you now, because there are other places than Sweden, obviously, and I think we said maybe even on the, on the very first episode when we talked about secretaries that international arbitration is, is the least unionized business in the world. There mm-hmm. are no, no, no labor laws at all being, being respected. What, what would you, if you were to ballpark, how many days a year on average do you think uh, a mid-senior arbitration lawyer gets with no work? at all like how many days totally off disconnected from from their business do you think that you would get oh like totally totally off yeah um excluding now weekends and major holidays
0: yeah excluding weekends and major holidays i would say you would probably get um
1: 15
0: days you get 30 days vacation so i'm just saying like half of those you'll probably
1: be working so i would say 15 And and that's a general standard. Does it does it differ significantly between jurisdictions? Because I mean, um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: A a blue collar person in Sweden gets, you know, nine months off. It feels like. Whereas a blue collar person in uh, the U.S. would get two days off. Does that does that translate into our business, or has it just, you know, met met somewhere in the middle? Because we're working in a global world, and the expectations have sort of gelled.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think that like U.S. expectation has kind of permeated through a lot of the European jurisdictions um, just because of the amount of billables that are coming in and the amount of, you know, the expectations for the client. I mean, we're glorified prostitutes. We (laughs) got we got to pay, you know, we got to work when the pay comes in. Yeah, right. Um, So I think, you know, I think it is a bit like a, a homogenous middle ground. Um, I would have to say, even though, but I would say like around 15 days, like I would never think of going on vacation without my computer. Mm -hmm. And
1: that's crazy. That's a good Um, sign. Not a good sign. It's a bad sign, but it's a, it's a telling sign, I think. Yeah. And I think some
0: people make a really concerted effort to say, I'm going on vacation. I will not have my computer. Mm -hmm. Um, They're no longer working. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're all out of the business
0: no i think people i think some people and i think we need to as you know to unionize unofficially and say like you know that expectation
1: should no longer be expected of us um i don't Amen. know hey man i uh, i don't know if you know this i am um, i'm named after a, a swedish guy named Heglund who emigrated to the u.s and became a worker's here under the name joe hill wrote a bunch of worker's hero uh, folk songs, essentially, before he was framed for a crime he did not commit and was executed, es- essentially, because U.S. business interests did not like him. He, by the way, came up with the phrase pie in the sky, among other things. Useful <laughs> information. J- just saying this uh, by way I of background. I'm, floored I'm right now. <laughs> <laughs> I come from a very uh, union-friendly family and general environment, uh, even for, for for Swedes, I think. And I sometimes have a hard time explaining to my parents how it works in our world when I have to do something, just walk away for an hour or two and address something that has, has come up in a case where I'm a secretary or something. She's like, it, it doesn't matter that it's New Year's Eve. Something has to be done about this now. And they're like, what? I hope they pay you a million dollars. This is insane. Like, fight the man. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Joel, this
0: story about you and your name is iconic i just i really? can't I think had a, of anything else growing so up, I, had
1: a, I had a poster of joe hill on my my, <laughs> my my room and it's it said allegedly when he was executed the last thing he said was don't mourn me organize ah <gasps> last words and i have i have uh, that i don't know had that on a poster I probably have a poster oh, still. Wow. that does not obviously apply to major international law firms that you should organize and fight the man. You are the man,
0: basically. I am gonna tell my juniors when I like finish a case and I'm like dead because I haven't slept. I'll be like, don't mourn me. Organize the case well. <laughs> <laughs> don't <laughs> I don't think that was the Joe Hill <laughs> sentiments. Right. Organize the case now. That is just such an amazing like dedication and what a great thing to name their kid after. I mean it's that is thoughtful and like you know, my uncle Rick was named after Rick from I Love Lucy. So I think, you know, I think that's uh, quite a difference there. Yeah,
1: obviously, my parents' intentions, to the extent that they had any, had any, uh, backfired. I did not become a workers' champion. I became a free agent in international arbitration. So uh, mission failed. Right. Well, um, there's still time. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Maybe I'll be the first union hero. Uh, <laughs> Joe Hill wasn't built in, in, a day. Joel yeah. was in a day. Joe Hill wasn't built. All right. Thank you, Brian, for uh, and yet another happy fun time. And I look forward to doing this uh, repeatedly with another third person too.
0: That's right. All right. We will speak in a couple of weeks.
1: Yes. Take care. Um, and for those of uh, our listeners who feel like reaching out, we're still on Twitter at the arb station, or you can email us the arbitration station at gmail.com. Want to say though. We have uh, sufficient research help as it is. We keep getting unsolicited, very, very nice offers to help us with research almost every week. Uh, We would love to uh, bring you all under the arbitration station umbrella, but uh, there's simply not enough research to go around for all of us who who want to do it. We might start a think tank at some later point, but for now, we're set. All right, but thank you so much. We really appreciate the... um, the
0: participation and the engagement. Right. Uh, Au revoir.